You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello, I'm Professor Fred Long. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of Greek Matters. I'm going to be looking at Romans 6, 1 through 6 today. This was requested by a former student of mine to whom I dedicate this edition. Romans 6 is an often neglected chapter. It comes before the climax and of chapter 8. Chapter 8 is kind of like the main performance at a rock concert. But often what happens is that chapter 7, which is really a warm-up band, is uh, outperforms and gets the better attention than chapter 8 even. And so, so much attention is placed on chapter 7. Well, chapter 6 is actually the stage setup. And without, without chapter 6, we really fail to understand how seven, chapter 7 fits in with even chapter 8. In uh, the next weeks, I'll have other videos that will helpfully clarify that. But right now, I want to look at chapter 6 and these first six verses here. Now, I have the Greek text up inside of my Logos Bible software. I've got a color coding schema. <clears throat> Orange are pronouns. Green are conjunctions and particles. Non-indicative moods are in red. Adverbs in blue. And we do have a few prepositional phrases. Perfect tense verb forms are in yellow highlight. This is an amazing passage, and there is a transition taking place. In chapter 5, Paul has just compared and really contrast the one person, Adam, who brought in sin, and then the other person, Jesus, who brings in grace and righteousness, and then the gift of life. And then Paul kind of pauses and introduces the whole idea of the law. This will be taken up in more detail in chapter 7. But the law, he says, came in to increase transgression and sin, but grace abounded all the more. And so this leads to a question then, what then shall we say? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin in order that grace would abound? Now, teaching through Romans one time, the the question came to me, what is more powerful, uh, God's grace or human sin? So God's grace or human sin, what's more powerful? Well, what's more powerful in your life? I think it's an easy question to answer, really. Uh, God's grace is superior. It is more powerful than human sin. But that makes us feel uncomfortable because in our lives we may not experience that. Well, I'm an optimist when it comes to the, the restoration that God can achieve in the life of believers. And I believe that Paul, too, was an optimist in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to overcome sin. The secret for Paul, which is also the secret and the key for us, is that we need to see our lives in relation to Christ. What happens to Christ is what we begin to experience. And in these opening verses of chapter 6, we're going to see that Paul is going to be comparing what happens to us at our baptism with with death, what Christ experienced. And what that means for us is the ability to walk 
and a newness of life. All right, well, I want to point out a few prominent features in these verses. I've made uh, a translation here that can help me to do that. So we, we have this question, uh, therefore, what should we do? What shall we say? And, and then it's almost like there's a continuation of that idea. What shall we say? Is this what we shall say? And it's in the form of a deliberate, what's called a deliberative question. We have a subjunctive mood verb used here. And importantly, it's in the present tense, which, which would suggest ongoingness. Should we be remaining in sin in order that grace may abound? You see, earlier in the letter, Paul had contemplated the question, if, if our sinfulness makes God's justice more evident, then why are we punished for being sinful? <laughs> and so there's something similar going on here. If, if our sin makes grace all the more wonderful, then what, you know, do we, can't we just keep living in sin, particularly if it's going to magnify God's gracious response? And Paul here uh, entertains this question only briefly to say, no way. This me genito is a very emphatic denial. In fact, in my Koine Greek grammar, I talk about different levels of negation, and that in Greek you can negate statements in different kinds of ways, and you can ramp up the denial or the negation. This is one of the most explicit ways to make a denial, to say no way whatsoever. And it's hard to convey that uh, in, in our translations, and so we want to make sure that we really understand that Paul believes this question is not correct. We should not be remaining present tense, in sin, so that grace would abound. And he begins to explain why that is, and then in what follows. He says, those of us who died to sin, how yet will we live in it? Now, it's key here to understand that we've died to it. Now, he's going to explain how and what was the mechanism for our death to sin, but that's really important if you think about it is that we're no longer alive to sin. Sin is not an option for believers. And so he says we're not going to live in it uh, as a result. Now, in verse 3, he gets really quite uh, straightforward about this. He says, are you ignorant that? <clears throat> now, this is quite a, a, a strong statement to make, uh, claiming ignorance on their part, or at least entertaining that possibility. In fact, this is the first time that he's made that move after the original uh, statement of saying, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant that I was trying to come to you and visit you. That's back in chapter 1. So here, Paul's ramping up the rhetoric a bit and to make the point that he wants them to know something, to not be in ignorance of it. And this is what he wants to communicate right here, then what follows as many of us were baptized into Christ, into his death, we were baptized. So this is what they need to not be ignorant of. This is what they need to know, in other words, is that our life in Christ, which begins with our conversion, which begins with our co-identification with him, 
begins with baptism. Now, baptism is, is a symbol of death. And in the gospel tradition, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, I have a baptism to undergo. And he was referring to his death. And so this becomes, a, this becomes paradigmatic for believers, that when we die with Christ, it means that when we're baptized, that we're identifying with his death. And Paul works out a further implication of that, and, and that is that we, we're dying to sin. So sin is no longer alive to us. It's no longer a place where we go and that we gain life from. In fact, we're dead to it. And so he's really stressing that our life now belongs in Christ and starts with our baptism and with the death that we share with him. And this relative pronoun here, osu, osu is stressing quantity, as many of us were. And so this is really just indicating that this is it has inclusive scope. All believers uh, fall under this category, and that's what's signified by our baptism. Now, he continues this line of thought in verse 4 and connects it with an inferential conjunction. So, therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death. So, at this point, he's, he's continuing to, to draw out implications. So, not only were we baptized into his death, but we were buried at our baptism. So our baptism is a kind of burial. And this then is a setup for what happens as a consequence. We were buried with him. You see, our life is hidden with Christ. We died with Christ. Now we're buried with Christ. And Paul then indicates we were buried in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, thus also we in newness of life, also would walk. So our death and burial and resurrection with Christ becomes the means by which, the, the means by which we are now able to walk in newness of life. This is a really emphatic statement here that concludes verse 4. Thus also we... The subject is emphatic. It's made explicit. The ke is meaning also. So adding to the idea of resurrection, then also the, the idea of, of newness of life. And, and then the other thing is that this prepositional phrase is using two nouns, newness of life. Now, Paul could have just used new. He could have used the word new, and if you look at his writings, he uses this adjective. But by using a noun, and then followed up by another noun, newness of life, he is stressing the newness that that life is, that we can have when we identify with Christ completely in his death and burial and resurrection, new life. So that's what's being stressed here by using these two nouns rather than an adjective, an adjective and a noun. Well, I want to continue on because these next two verses really help establish important ideas. In verse 5, he supports verse 4 with this gar, and he has a conditional statement. For if we are partakers in the likeness or shares in the likeness of his death. If, if we have become this, notice that that's a perfect tense verb form. This is a resultant state. This is what 
is in existence. This is it's not a, a question of whether it exists or not. This is something that's happened and it has continued results up to and including the present. So if we have been sharers of the likeness of his death, also, he says, we will be of his resurrection, but also. And this is quite forcefully communicated by this use of the conjunction Allah, which indicates uh, an, an alternative. Uh, in other words, not just staying in death, but actually experience, experiencing also the resurrection now, verse 6 expands on this idea using this participle. Now, this is a, a kind of a nice setup because this participle means knowing. And there's not really a new sentence here. It really picks up and continues the idea of verse 5. He says, knowing this, namely that. Now, this, this is a forward-pointing device. And it's really looking forward to this OT, which means that. And so in my translation, I'm trying to kind of stress that he's building up what we know. Now, once again, this knowing is a present tense participle. It's ongoing, and it's, it's looking forward to knowledge that we have, that we now have. And basically, that knowledge is consistent with what he's just said. Our old self has been crucified in order that the body characterized by sin would be done away with. So uh, what, what he's saying here is that our old self being crucified, that's the means, and it actually has a purpose. And that purpose is that our body, which is characterized by sin, our old sinful self, would be done away with. Now, once again, he doesn't use an adjective here. He uses a noun with a noun. So literally the body of the sin. And this is a particular kind of genitive uh, noun usage, which we would call a descriptive genitive. In other words, our sinful body, our body which is characterized by sin. This is now done away with. And this is a very strong verb here of annulment. It's no longer in effect. And so you can see that chapter 6 here is making it really clear that in Christ, sin is, we're dead to it. And moreover, that part of ourselves, how we used to live, is dead and annulled. And then finally, verse 6, I just want to look at the last part of this. We have an infinitive construction with uh, that indicates result. In order that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the result of all of this work of, of God and Christ and our identification with his death and, and burial and, and being raised again in newness of life, all the purpose of that is to set us free, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And we need to take note of the tense of this infinitive, du levine, um, indicates ongoingness and in fact we're no longer continuing to be enslaved to sin so this is in other words something that no longer is happening and so we're set free uh, from sin well again chapter 6 of Romans is providing an essential framework for the argument that ensues and it's too bad it gets lost uh, 
between um, chapter 7 and then the climax of chapter 8, it's, it's almost forgotten. And yet chapter 6 provides this important framework. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. I always uh, look forward to any suggestions of verses you'd have me look at. So email me or contact me on my YouTube channel. Thanks. We'll see you next time in Greek Matters. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.